Well, as Matt uh, boasted much in, uh, in our relationship, I, I am thankful for you guys. I, I could look across this room and people I've got to know better over the years, and I'm thankful for that. And uh, there, there's something, even as Matt talks about bringing other preachers in, uh, to know that you're not the only church that is making the gospel of Christ known is, is an encouragement because there are legitimate weaknesses in our own body at Kaleo, um, things that you guys do well. Um, and so we've learned from you guys. Josh Cass um, is a, a mastermind in many ways who sits in on our leaders' meetings at times and just helps us grow where we, we get called dinosaurs many times in the way we deal with things technologically. So anything uh, other than a printed piece of paper pretty much comes from Josh Cass. And then Charity. Uh, Charity has been a gift, I know, to us, not just while she was at Kaleo, but here. Uh, she, she probably does more work for me and Tim now than she ever did before um, and still blesses you guys very deeply. So we're thankful for Infusion. Um, and yet we have many ways we can grow, right? So let's get in uh, today's text, Philemon, a tiny little book, uh, small in size and rich in gospel application. Uh, in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr., he ended up in this jail cell uh, of the Birmingham jail for leading this nonviolent resistance against racism. And while he is in jail, he penned this very powerful letter. It's in book form now, and it's called Letter from the Birmingham Jail. But it was printed in the newspaper, and it drastically changed the tone of racism, especially in the South. One part of that letter, it's really applicable still today, describes the counterculture of the church and what Christ's bride is meant to be or called to be in the world. This one little section from it, he writes, Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the church, they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. And then you can hear Luther King Jr.'s tone change. It says, things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. You see, Martin Luther King Jr. was saddened that as he sat in a jail cell as him and others tried to fight racism. Many of his brothers and sisters in Christ were silent or even, by their silence, agreeing with the way they were being treated. The church, God's own adopted family, they seemed to be silent in the suffering of their brothers and sisters. Well, this isn't the first time this has happened in the church. In fact, this morning we're going to read another letter from another jail cell calling for the family of God to rise above the social barriers of society. This letter is the letter of Philemon, and it's written by the Apostle Paul as he sits in a jail cell. 
And due to an unexpected visitor who we'll be introduced to later, Paul becomes aware of this radical injustice that's going on in his church, and he decides he will not and cannot be silent. Likewise, my prayer and my hope is that we will not respond with silent indifference to all the injustices our brothers and sisters are experiencing, maybe here in our own local church and across the city. So if you're not in Philemon, open up. We're going to start trekking through a bit. And Paul, Paul opens this letter unlike any other letter. If you're used to reading through the New Testament, especially Paul's epistles, he usually starts right off the bat by flexing his apostolic authority. All right, an apostle was someone who had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ and had been sent by him specifically to take the gospel to a specific area. Well, rather than opening up that way, which would have been fitting in this situation, as you will see, he opens the letter up by calling himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus, which is, in one sense, very literal because he's in prison. But as we'll see, he's actually identifying himself, uniting himself to this visitor who is going to come and see him. His name is Onesimus, and he was a slave of the man that this book was written to, Philemon. We find rather quickly that Paul is writing to Philemon, and more than likely, Philemon is the pastor of this church and the one who hosts the church in his own home. And then in verses 4 through 7, we start to get Paul's typical or customary greeting of love and thanksgiving, best summarized in verse 7, when he says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So before Paul gets to the problem in the letter, he's laying down this foundation to make sure that Philemon can hear from a place of love. And not only love, he's reminding Philemon that he is family. He calls Philemon a brother and reminds him he's, been, he's enjoyed being loved by Philemon. He's seen that people have been refreshed by Philemon. And you see, according to verse 10, Paul's appealing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, a slave in the church that meets in Philemon's house. Now look at verse 10. I appeal to you, talking to Philemon, for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. You see this affectionate family language. Throughout the letter, he'll, he'll call Onesimus his son. He'll say he's Onesimus's father. He calls Philemon a brother. He calls Timothy a brother. He is grounding this whole letter in the reality that the gospel forms a family. And so he's writing to this family, but he's appealing on behalf of Onesimus. Now, we will learn in a little bit, Onesimus eventually places his trust in Jesus, becoming a part of this family of God. That's why he can call him a brother. But as we learn from the letter, it wasn't always that way. We know Philemon, more than likely, is a wealthy man. Uh, if you look at not just New Testament commentaries and things like that, but extra-biblical sources in the first century, it was typically not just the pastor, but the most wealthy of the congregation that would host these little house churches. So Philemon, he's a believer, he's a pastor, and he's more than likely very wealthy, wealthy enough to host this little local church. And here's where the tension starts to come in. 
Philemon, this preacher, pastor, wealthy, first century Christian, is preaching week in and week out. And Onesimus, his slave, is hearing the gospel week after week as this community of believers comes rushing in. I want you to imagine with me what it must have been like to be Philemon's slave, to be a part of this small little local church, to hear all this great gospel doctrine, and yet still be a slave. Okay, Onesimus, not only was he hearing the gospel week in and week out, he's hearing of this new kingdom family that doesn't respond or relate to one another the way people do in the Roman Empire. He's hearing about a king who did not win by force, but through weakness and humility. He's hearing of how this new kingdom family loves their enemies instead of getting even. And he probably kept hearing this new kingdom idea that certain people of class, color, do not matter less or matter more because they are in Christ. Elsewhere, Paul writes in in Galatians 3.28, In regards to our new identity, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now imagine being Onesimus. Imagine hearing all of these new things about what God has done and how people now relate to one another in Christ, and yet, each week, he's bringing the people of God in, more than likely responsible for washing their feet, taking care of all their business. Now, there is a reality in the Roman Empire. People sold themselves into slavery because of debts. There was abusive slavery. There was self-slavery where you would sell yourself into this whole idea of slavery. But the reality is, no matter what form of slavery he's under, he's hearing this grand idea that you are not identified by what you do, what you look like. You are identified, if you believe in Christ, as in Christ. That is your identity. Well, I imagine after weeks and weeks of hearing these great, beautiful doctrines, this tension starts to prick Onesimus, as he starts to look around and say, how is it that they keep saying these things that are supposedly so beautiful and true and comforting, and here I am living as if they aren't true? And he can't trust Philemon, as we see in the text, because Paul says that Onesimus came to him. And so Onesimus packs up his bags and travels a hundred miles to go visit Paul in prison. Now, you got to realize, in the Roman Empire in the first century, if you as a slave voluntarily left and ran away from your slave owner, the slave owner had the absolute authority to put you to death if he or she chose. So this tension in Onesimus' mind and his heart is causing such a costly desire to know the truth that he is willing to chance his own death so he could figure out the truth. Because it doesn't seem like these people in this little church necessarily believe it. They say they do. But what's actually happening doesn't really match. So Onesimus packs his bags and bounces and goes and sees the Apostle Paul. Now my guess is that they had 
these intimate conversations, right? Paul says, I became his father in my imprisonment. He became my son. And so we know that Onesimus placed his trust in Jesus while he was there. So Paul kind of solved and put to bed all these tensions that Onesimus had. And yet what we see is after days of being together, Paul doesn't say, now that you've believed the gospel, just stay here with me and let me enjoy you. You can enjoy me. We're the perfect family. But we see that there's a weighty obedience he's going to demand of not just Philemon, but of Onesimus, because he writes a letter, puts it in Onesimus' hand, and sends him back. I mean, how many of us, when conflict comes, use every single excuse possible to avoid it? Right? Imagine being Onesimus, you going back, and really, Philemon has the right, under the civil authority, to say what you did is punishable by death, and so be it. And Paul pushes him out <laughs> lovingly as a son and says it's time to go back and fix these things. Well, after this sweet season with Paul, Philemon carries this letter a hundred miles back. And in the days of the early church, when a letter like this would be received, it would be sealed and the pastor who would read it would officially unseal this scroll, unroll it, and read it for the first time in front of the congregation. Now, there's a good chance Onesimus knew the contents of it, but Philemon didn't. Now, I want you to imagine Onesimus walking into the room like, am I going to get killed? How am I going to be received? And church is gathering. I picture Onesimus kind of sitting over here, head down, like, I'm either going to die today or something... God's going to do a good work in me. And then Philemon, you know, rips the letter, in a sense, out of his hand, gets up to read it, thinking that Paul's going to say, you know, take it easy on Onesimus. He made a rash decision. So all the eyes of the church are looking upon Philemon. He gets up to read this letter from the great apostle Paul who's in prison. All eyes are on Philemon. And he starts to read. Follow along in verses 8 through 16 with me. He writes, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Right there, Paul's uh, in the Greek, he's doing some wordplay. The, the word useful is the same word as Onesimus. So he's actually saying he was once not his true self to you. Before he was a Christian, he wasn't useful. Now he's truly Onesimus to you. He is who he is meant to be. And then in verse 12 and following, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother." 
especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. My guess is Philemon's heart kind of sinking a bit. All eyes are looking. I'm guessing there's other slave owners in the room that are thinking, uh-oh, if he lets Onesimus go, then that means I need to let my slaves go, which will disrupt economy in the Roman Empire at a fast and great rate. And I can imagine other slaves sitting there, whatever way they got into slavery, looking at each other like, man, Apostle Paul's on our team. Today, we might be, <laughs> we're going to have to go get a job somewhere else and get some rent going. But listen, we might not be under the heavy hand of the Roman government in this way anymore. You see, the gospel demands and it motivates weighty obedience. The gospel isn't something just to say in our head, Jesus forgives my sins. He imputed his righteousness. I'm now free in him. Praise God, that is true. But it demands weighty obedience. Paul could have just told Onesimus, listen, bro, it's easier here. I'm in prison. You can serve me. Go get me some Del Taco. Go get me some grub. Come on back. We'll just, we'll have this father-son relationship benefit both of us, right? But Paul sees that the gospel is at war with the culture. And if he doesn't send Onesimus back, it's saying something about the gospel that weakens it and lessens the good news that it holds. Now the truth is, Paul could have just demanded obedience here. He's an apostle. He says, I could have commanded you to do this. And that's where we get the difference between the Roman Empire and the church and our world today and the church. This new kingdom family we've been purchased into, the ethic is love. Right? It's a love that has meat on its bones. It's not a, oh, God loves me, but I don't love my neighbor. No, it's a real love where the rubber hits the road. Paul picks this up in verses 8 through 9 when he says, Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, I love this little phrase, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. We have a deacon in our church. His name's Tomas. Uh, he's in his early 50s, and uh, he's, he's been one of the greatest mentors I've ever had, and he is uh, the best man I know. And every time I'm with Tomas, whenever I'm struggling with certain things or decisions in the church or with family and stuff, he looks me in the eyes in his strong German accent, says, Wes, I, I'm not going to do the German accent, I can't do it. He says, Wes, what would love do? Man, part of me hates that question. Like, I know what love would do, but I'm over here and I know I'm right, so I'm just going to do that. But he doesn't let me go that way. And our God wants us to respond in love in our relationships with one another and with our neighbors in the same way that Paul is calling Philemon to here. The truth is, if we could let this become our ethic, this love ethic, 
It's otherworldly. It would change, not just our cultures as a church, but it would really, truly change the lives of our neighbors. See, to let go of your authoritative power and let love be that which guides the way you treat others, this is breathtaking. It's, it's different than what our world tells us to do. Now, here's the main issue. I'm going to summarize our main issue, and then we're going to expand on it a bit. Philemon, the main issue Paul has here is that Philemon has let Onesimus' identity as a slave become a barrier that kept him from treating him as a family member. Here, I'll say it again. Philemon had let Onesimus' identity as a slave become a barrier that kept him from treating Onesimus as a family member. What about you? What barriers keep you from treating others the way God has first treated you? What barriers are there in your life? For some of you, it might be economics causing you to treat people according to their financial status. When you drive by the homeless person panhandling and asking for money, your first instinct is to look down on them and think if they could just get a job and be a contributing citizen to society, they wouldn't have to ask for money. Or maybe we look up at those who are more wealthy than us, thinking the Bible speaks very seriously against those who love money more than God. I'm down here poor and I'm more Christ-like. When the truth is you just haven't got a good job. I mean, real life. For others of you, it might be skin color. You grew up in a neighborhood where there weren't many people different than you. So when you see someone walking down the street towards you, you kind of do the jaywalking across the street, right? And kind of looking over your shoulder because you've seen what those kind of people do. Maybe, and this one's heartbreaking especially, maybe even in the church, it's past sin of others. When you know the sins of others, you might say in your mind, man, God washed that, he forgave that, he has cleansed that, praise God, but me, I just can't have that kind of person in my home. I just can't be close to that. It, it's, it's too heinous, it's too foul. But God forgives you, go in peace. See, I think sometimes we need to stop entertaining all these grand visions of crossing the seas to go share the gospel when we're not even able to love our neighbor that lives next door, let alone our brother and sister in Christ in the seats next to us. I think we need to pull back our great and grand dreams of going so far and starting all these new ministries and doing all these radical things for God when we need to learn to love one another. The great commandment to love God and love your neighbor, that's radical. To do that day in and day out, that takes a bit more guts sometimes than some of these other things we long to do. So then the next question becomes, like Paul, and even like Martin Luther King Jr., will we speak up and take action when our brothers and sisters need us most? Or will we continue in silent indifference saying things like, God may not have called me to such a thing. Even though we live right next door to someone and they're struggling, we might think, oh, well, God will raise someone up. All the while we uh, finish a whole season of Netflix in one day. 
truth of the matter is, as hard of a battle as this seems to be sometimes, to cross these barriers that make us so uncomfortable to love as we've first been loved is far easier, far more simple than we think. We just don't have the courage and the guts and the love on our bones that we need. Four or five years ago, we live in this, this mobile home park, and it's not as ghetto as we think of with mobile home parks. It's actually pretty nice. Uh, we, move, we moved in eight years ago, and then about five years ago, we weren't seeing a lot of fruit no matter what we did with our neighbors. And finally, you know, you have kids, and for some reason, people like kids more than they like me. Uh, and so my kids are the greatest evangelists in our neighborhood. Uh, but my wife sat down, and she said to me, she's like, your mind's always so driven by writing books, by having the next great sermon. You're great at counseling with people in our church, all these kind of things. She goes, but why don't we just start having our neighbors over, confessing our failure to be good neighbors, confessing our ignorance about what their life is like, and asking them questions. What if we started there? And my wife, she's way smarter than I'll ever be, and at first, I was hesitant because I had preached the gospel to probably a hundred different neighbors with no fruit. And I will tell you, something changed in our neighborhood and has continued to change ever since. When we invite people over and say, tell me your story. I want to confess I haven't been a good neighbor and I'm ignorant about you. Tell me about your life. Man, all of a sudden now, I, I'm not going to lie, I'm introverted. I would do anything to get more quiet time. Folks are always wanting to be at our house now. They're always wanting us at their houses. And I'm like, yo, I'm just trying to read a book in the corner. And my wife just, hey, it's another chance to love. You see, it's more simple. It's, it's make a meal, ask questions, and enjoy each other. This is what Onesimus needed. Imagine if Philemon would have sat down Onesimus and said, hey, what's it like being a slave in this little house church? Is that hard for you to hear all these ideas of freedom and being in Christ while at the same time you aren't free? Imagine that. He wouldn't have had to travel a hundred miles. How many of our neighbors don't know Jesus, have never heard the gospel, but the first time they do, they're traveling to that mega church 45 minutes away rather than hearing it from the neighbor next door? That's what Onesimus needed. That's what Martin Luther King Jr. needed. And this is what the world still needs today. Now, I'm going to pull back for a second and try to give a picture of what this love looks like. I think I did already with loving your neighbor, but I'm going to put a biblical passage to it. And in this culture we have that things are only meaningful if you go all the way to the other side of the world or risk your life or do all these things... Paul actually has a different thing in mind. Look at Colossians 3, 9 through 14. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put the old self, or put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. So that's what he already said before, right? In Christ, we find our identity. No one else is more important than the other. But then he goes on, as, as Paul does often, and, and applies this. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Listen how crazy this is. Compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, go 12 miles to the other church down the street. Just kidding. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Non-negotiable. Ordinary and yet radical. Now look at verse 14. And above all, right, the highest thing you can do, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The problem is, though, man, what, I mean, we don't have the strength in us to do this. I mean, we can try and we fail. We, we invite a neighbor over and they're pretty crazy sometimes. And we're like, man, we can't do that. That is unsafe for the kids. Or we offend a neighbor, right? And they're like looking at us all crazy and like, oh, that's the weird religious dude. And you got all this tension, right? But we can't just keep doing this. We run out of the ability. We run out of the strength at times. And so the call is not to just keep trying, but to remember again how much we have been loved. You see, to put on such love and to put on such compassion and kindness is to first remember the family that purchased us into the family of God. You see, before the creation of the world, the Father, Son, and Spirit were in perfect unity. And because they loved one, in, one another so perfectly, they decided out of love to create a world and share that love with their creation. And as they created, they knew that man and woman would fall, and they decided even then they would send Christ to redeem a people for themselves. And as they loved perfectly and created out of love, we see the love that we need to remember again to love the way they first loved us. And knowing that all of creation would sin against God and all of his righteous commands ever before the Trinity was the greatest barrier of love, the greatest dilemma ever in human history. How could a holy, loving, and perfect God love a sinful people and still be just? Right? We think we have these big barriers, right? My neighbor is very offensive. Their dog barks at all hours of the night. They really frustrate me. God, God's saying, I'm holy, beautiful, perfect, eternal. You're down here in your sin. Now, how can God cross that barrier, love, and be just? Some people want to accuse God and just say, well, why couldn't he just forgive everyone? Right? It, if he's so loving, why couldn't he just forgive? Well, that brings his justice into play. There would be heaps and mounds of injustice showing God's character not to be just and pure. So then we have a God who's willing to love, but he's faced with this dilemma of injustice. What does he do with that? And not only that, the barrier of sin itself between God and his creation, that barrier, the sin, is against God personally. And so what is he going to do to remedy the situation? Well, John Flavel, a 16th century pastor and theologian, he takes us into this great council between the Father and the Son. And he paints this conversation biblically, but in a way that takes us imaginatively into their presence. The Father says this, My son, 
looking down upon creation. He says, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them all. What shall be done for these souls? The son replies, oh, my father, such is my love to pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all their debts that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand shall you require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father replies, but my son, if thou undertake it for them, thou must reckon to pay the last cent. Expect no reduction. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son replies, I am content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all of my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. And so we see that Jesus, he takes on a body. Right? We heard at the beginning about going all the way to Saudi Arabia. We just had our own missionaries back for their first visit from Jakarta. And we, we see all these missionaries who travel around the world, but we remember the love of the first missionary who was all the way in heaven, in glory, worthy of worship for all of eternity, who puts on a body and travels the greatest distance and comes into hostile territory for the sake of love. He says, there is a grand barrier and no one could cross it but me and I'm going to take on a body and I am going to have it crushed to show my love and to prove that I am just. We see this barrier crossing love in Philippians 2, 5-8 through 8, when Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. If that wasn't far enough to come, Paul continues, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. If that weren't enough, even death on a cross. From the greatest glory possible to the lowest and most humiliating death, Christ himself crosses the great barrier that separated us from God. And for the sake of love, Jesus didn't cling to his glory. He had every right, but let it all go so he could be crushed. And love was the motivation, and justice was paid in full. And all the sins that would be the barrier to people becoming this new kingdom family in one fatal blow are wiped away. All of our sins, not just against him, but against one another. So then this begs the question, and this is really, really important. If Jesus can cross this barrier from glory to death on a cross, is it too much to ask Philemon to set Onesimus free? Is that that grand of a barrier? 
No, he's now a brother. He's in Christ. And he's saying, it's time to set him free. What about you? Is, is the barrier-crossing love of God enough for you to speak up and act according to the gospel? Not just proclaim it and rejoice about it as much as we need to do that, but to actually put it into action. You see, the gospel not only makes us a part of God's family, we're adopted in and we receive all the benefits that Christ earned for us. But it's also supposed to make us crawl out of our skin when other brothers and sisters are not treated according to the gospel. It's supposed to make us fidget. It's supposed to make us uncomfortable. And if you love God and believe the gospel, you will naturally love your neighbor. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-19, For the love of Christ controls us. Right? It's not a fun Hallmark card thing to think about when we're down, but it controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. He's talking about that people are they're immortal. That there is no one who just is born and dies. That there is something following. And then he says, therefore, or he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him, regard him this no longer. He rose from the dead, immortal, eternal. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us. The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, the same message, the same good news of the gospel that was given to Paul to go and spread in the first century is now given to us as well to not just believe with our heads, but to live out with our hearts in our hands. Those who have experienced the love of God are now voluntarily under His control. And His control is one that reminds us that we have been loved supremely and infinitely more than anything in this world could offer us. And I feel like this is maybe one of God's ways of just kind of giggling at our silliness at times. But who better to use? Right? I think of God giving us the, the ministry of reconciliation, and I'm thinking, I wouldn't have done it that way. Like, go find someone else that does this better, but he gives it to those who've received the love of God, who've experienced this boundary-crossing love, and he says, there's no one better than a mess like you. To go say, man, God was this far away from me. He came down. He met me. He loved me. And so now I'm just going to love you as my neighbor. So yes, your chihuahua barks in the oddest hours of the night. And I just want to punt that thing. I've had that thought so many times about your dog. And I'm sorry. Can you explain to me why you love chihuahuas? <laughs> and I can tell you, God can turn 
somehow someone who loves chihuahuas into someone who loves Jesus. I promise it can happen. And he can reconcile the way we relate to one another. That's real talk, though. In all seriousness, God has crossed some major boundaries to love us. He has come from heaven to earth. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we have received this love and it is controlling us, what boundaries do we need to cross? Where do we need to speak up where we've been silent? And I want to encourage you and remind you again, it's as simple as a meal. I'm not saying that if you cook your best meal, everyone's going to trust Jesus that day. But it's a good step, and people will feel loved. So let us be a people that are clothed in the love of our God. That God just didn't shout from heaven, I love you. But he came in the flesh, went to a cross, and proved it. And so let us now, so overwhelmed by this love, be controlled into loving first our brothers and sisters in here. And I would say apply this today. If you have anything towards someone else in this room, let the first thing you do after the service, pull them aside, confess. Jesus tells us to forgive as we've been forgiven. Right? It's not an option. So let us confess. Let us repent. Let us forgive. But then let's start making some steps in loving our actual neighbors. Could you imagine looking back a year from now and thinking, man, I actually listened to that. And now two different neighbors love Jesus. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you've ever seen one of your neighbors come and take communion for the first time, it'll get you in the fetal position real quick. You'll be real weak in a second. There's something beautiful about watching someone who didn't know Jesus come and gather and take communion. So, Infusion Church, let us be a people who enjoy the love of God, but offer freely that love as well. Let's pray.